There you go, oh, Freddie. I think that worked. I think yeah. there it is. I think it is. It is. It is working. <laughs> uh, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, Spectators U.S. Edition second event. Uh, and we are hugely honoured to be joined by one of my favourite Americans uh, and a great, great writer, uh, Thomas Frank. And we're going to be talking about his book, "The People Know: A Brief History of Anti-Populism." Uh, now, Tom, I remember uh, when you were starting on this book, we had we had lunch in Washington, and we talked a lot about um, all the books that have been written about populism in the last five years. There's so many. It's, it's a sort of subject that everybody talks about now. Yeah. Uh, what we sort of alighted upon is that nobody really seems to talk about where it came from and what it is. And so I wanted to ask you, first of all, what do you think is the worst... Uh, book. And then secondly, why do all these books get it so wrong in your opinion? Okay. So there's a, so can I take a step back and say, um, so years ago I studied um, American history. I got a PhD in it. It was going to be my, um, my um, life's work. And then, you know, what happened in uh, the American academic job market, the bottom fell out. And, and so I found something else to do with myself. But one of the subjects that I specialized in, or if you want to say specialized, that I studied a lot, read a lot about, was populism, uh, meaning this American movement in the 1890s. It was the last sort of big uh, third party movement in this country. <clears throat> it was a left wing farmer labor party that for a couple of years burned very brightly uh, overthrew ruling elites. Uh, by overthrew, I mean voted out ruling parties uh, all over the Midwest and in some places in the South and also in the Far West. And then um, burned out uh, after the famous calamitous uh, election of 1896, which was this like, we're, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point in this conversation, this sort of incredible uh, watershed election here in America. And uh, that these people invented the word. In fact, they invented the word about 20 miles from where I'm sitting right now. I'm here in Kansas City. And the word was invented on a train ride between uh, Kansas City and Topeka. And, and for my for my book, that's just one of the little bits of history. I went back and did the digging on it. It's not hard to do. Uh, and you, you can find uh, who invented the word, what they were doing, uh, you know, and I actually was able to find the first time the word was used in print. It was in the month of May 1891. And uh, they were very excited because they knew it was a good word. They, they were like, mm. oh, that's, you know, that's kind of a you know, that's kind of resonant. And there's one newspaper I found that put it on their front page in an enormous headline, populist exclamation point, <laughs> you know, because they had found a word to name their movement. And this is kind of a, a an important, you know, big deal. Now, needless to say, or maybe your readers need to know, don't know this. All of these newspapers were in Kansas. These were small town radical newspapers and Kansas used to, there used to be a lot of radicals in small towns and and a lot of populists, okay? And that's all gone now. Kansas has gone the other way in kind of a gigantic, you know, in a kind of a huge way. But so I'm going, so a, a couple of years ago, I noticed what you're talking about, all this, this uh, boom in books about populism. And I, I got a whole bunch of them and started reading them. And they either, um, a lot of them just dismissed the American populist movement as, you know, not one of them dismisses it as not being populist 
which is funny because it's like they invented the word. They have a certain claim on it, you know. <laughs> and a lot of them just uh, a lot of them miscast it. They they describe it as as is precisely what it is not. So these like they make these profound historical errors about it, and then some of them uh, never mention it at all. And say things like populism, you know, the first populist was in the 1980s or, you know, the first populist was in South America in, in uh, you know, the 1970s. You know, it's it's crazy. And the, the one that the one that really got me, I think, on this was Yasha Monk's book. I don't want to say it's the worst, but it's the one that 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 really that, that I read. It shocked me when when I noticed this going on. The book was called The People versus Democracy. And he shows no uh not an hint no 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 hint at all that he understands that there was this American movement called populism. It's where the word comes from. He, <laughs> he, he doesn't know this. And and it's like what makes it really extraordinary is he's I know he's a he's a European, I believe he's from Germany, but he he lives in America. He makes his living in America. I believe he's at Harvard, you know, and um, or at Hopkins or something like that. But one of the one of the uh, you know prestigious American universities. You'd think a guy at a you know at a, at a place a, a, you know renowned for its scholarship would have asked around and figured this out, right? And and then you start going down the list. All of these books are written by people who are employed here in America, and they have no idea. And this is. You know, just to take a step back, like, how can you miss this, right? This, uh, okay, so it was a subject that I cared about a lot. And so it's personal to me that these people missed it. But it's not just me. This is in a, among American historians, you know, and, and we're kind of a, you know, the American historians are kind of important. <laughs> but among American historians, this subject is extremely well known. There's yeah. like, like uh, all of the great names of American historiography have written about it. Christopher Lash wrote about it. Larry Goodwin wrote about it. Richard Hofstadter wrote about it. Uh, C. Van Woodward wrote about it. All of these guys, these are the biggest names in, in American history. Charles Beard, all of them wrote about it. And it's but like, how, this, can, this how, is, how can you just ignore this? But this is the thing. I mean, I think part of it is that you can be a public intellectual now without really knowing anything about the subject you're supposed to be an expert. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, I, I'm, I'm learning that. And, and it's kind but, of a handicap to actually know something about it. That's that like goes, that cuts the wrong way, you know, but I, I think a lot of these uh, authors on property, uh, I think Yashaman perhaps qualifies as this. Uh, they uh, by the way, I should say before, I don't want to just, I just don't want to just trash Yasha Monk, because no, no, cool. the, 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 the larger project of his book is to stop the far right in Europe. And I'm, hey, I'm in favor of that. Let's do that. I want to do that. <laughs> that's, that's you know, that's important. Like, it's it's a good idea to stop the far right in Germany, uh, you know. Uh, and, but I think, uh, but, 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 but uh, well, again, I'm not talking about Monk, but in a lot of these books, there is this palpable disgust at uh, the people and the people getting involved. In yes. Sort of yes. Appalling. So this is, and this that's, is, what, this book, is that's what your book is, is about. Right. right? It's about so, so if, if you talk to, if you, if you actually like press the question with these kind of modern day theorists and political science types about populism, they'll be like, well, the word, the, the meaning of the word has changed. And so it's a completely different thing now. And so we're talking about this and not that. And we don't have to talk about uh, populism in the 1890s. Okay. Fair enough. That is that is legitimate. I think that's. I mean, it's not legitimate. It's. I think it's um, squirrely. Uh, I th am I allowed to curse? Of course. I think it's chicken shit. But <laughs> it's a. Uh, uh, 
but they're allowed to do that. Yes. But there is a way in which there's a continuity that they cannot avoid. Okay. And so that's what I set out to write about in, in my new book, by the way, this is what it looks like. Good cover. It is. Isn't that beautiful? It is brilliant. But there is a continuity from the 1890s up to these guys writing right now who claim they don't don't have to write, don't know anything about populism in America and it doesn't matter. And that is the backlash against populism in the 1890s. So populism, the sort of left wing farmer labor movement in America was destroyed. Uh, It was, you know, and the sort of establishment of their day came down on them in this incredible manner. And we'll talk about that at some point just savagely uh you know attacked this movement in uh, in the in the most vicious way and um and beat them okay and populism died and there is a direct continuity from those reactionaries in the 1890s to today's anti scholarly anti-populist movement a direct continuity I mean, they're saying the same things. They're using the same language and sometimes almost the same words as the anti-populist sort of propagandists uh, in the 1890s. That's my that's my thesis, and I'm sticking that's, with it. And that's the amazing thing. I mean, reading the the the, the, the quotes from the 1890s, uh, they are exactly the same words, same phrases, uh, and you bring this up again and again, brilliantly, that you hear used about Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. And, and by the way, I'm not a I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. Just to uh, make that no, make no, that I, I, you make that very clear. Uh, I, I, yeah, <laughs> he's, I, I just I think the guys uh, the, the what he's doing right now the 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 lack of leadership in this country is it's it's calamitous. I mean, I just can't believe what's happening. But nevertheless, what you just said is at the same time true. <laughs> that the, the 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 way they're attacking him is borrowed directly from the way they attacked William Jennings Bryan in 1896. And do you think that's and, that's and Franklin, and Franklin Roosevelt in 1936? Yeah. Up until this year, perhaps that's part of the reason for Trump's success is that people weren't really attacking him; they were attacking the deplorables. The the, the yes, exactly. Well, that was. I mean, even Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton herself knows that that using that word was this incredible blunder. Uh, she yeah. tried to she tried to back out of it. But what's fascinating to me is that a lot of sort of uh, I want I want to use the phrase center left. I, I I hate it seems mealy mouthed, but I'm going to have to use that right now. A lot of these sort of center left people were like, no, that's exactly what they are. They are deplorables. And they doubled down on this. And you see this everywhere now, uh, mm. this con- contempt for a certain kind of of American uh, who, yeah, a lot of them did vote for Donald Trump. A lot of them did vote for uh, Bernie Sanders in the primaries, you know. But uh, my argument, it, well, I mean, the commonalities between what they say about these people and what they said about Brian and Roosevelt uh, is it, it is uh, the continuity is precise. I mean, it is you, inescapable once you start you digging. It, you call it quasi aristocratic scorn. That's yeah. What you yeah. see because, because it's all about hierarchy. So the the the, uh, the opposition to uh, Brian in 1896, and I go into this in some detail, so that up until 1896, people basically laughed at populism. You know, it had taken over in Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, a couple of other places, Colorado, you know, and they were able to sort of sneer at it and laugh at it. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, the American economy in the 1890s goes into it collapses. You have a depression. You have these enormous strikes. You have a march, the first ever march on Washington organized by populists. And um, 
and it starts to seem real. And the sort of Eastern establishment begins to fear that the class war is at hand. And uh, they then the de- then the, you know the nightmare happens. Uh, the Democrats meet in their convention and they nominate this guy William Jennings Bryan. They throw Grover Cleveland, who's the who's the sitting president of the United States, is a Democrat, and his own party won't renominate him. They're like, you know, get lost. And they nominate instead this guy from Nebraska who's thirty six years old and has this uh, incredible oratorical gift. And has given this speech about the gold standard, the famous cross of gold speech. And uh, the Eastern press sees this and they go, they go berserk. It is, uh, you know, they go absolutely, they become hysterical. And they start this, there's this anti-Brian hysteria that sweeps the land. And the word that they use to describe Brian and everything that's wrong with him and his movement is populist. So they take this word, uh, you know, from these this third party. And by the way, in the populists, uh, once Brian was nominated by the Democrats, the populists saw this and got on board and also nominated him. So they you know, it's not inaccurate. But uh, at the same time, then they what they the way they described populism was they used the words anarchy, uh, repudiation. It was a rising up of society's uh, most unworthy elements. Um uh, it was, you know, it represented murder. It, rep- you know, it was an, the overthrow of respectability. And uh, I describe this in some detail because the uh, the similarities between that and the modern day anti-populism are uh, they're 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 extraordinary. Like this, uh, all of these economists, right, came together against Brian. All the newspapers in America came together against Brian. All the sort yeah. of respect respectable people. And back then, by the way. Um, uh, highly educated people and very wealthy people were uh, basically the same group. They saw eye to eye on everything. So the economics profession was extremely conservative. The jur- journalists were extremely conservative. All of these people, uh, you know, and they saw Brian, they, Brian was the end of the world. And if you go to my website, tcfrank.com, I've collected a bunch of uh, of this stuff, of, of, of hilarious examples of this hysteria. I call it a democracy scare. And it's yeah. a it's a recurring feature in uh, in American life. These democracy scares. You have another one in the 1930s. That's exactly it uses exactly the same language, only it's more racist uh, against <laughs> against, Fra- yeah, against Franklin yeah. Roosevelt. Well, the one in the 1890s was pretty damn racist. It was really racist, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, the, these were very racist uh, publications attacking William Jennings Bryan. The, but the one in the 1930s was scientific racism you know the lower orders were lower orders because their genes were bad you know they're they're (laughs) you know what i'm talking about here eugenics you know and you saw this all the time they had to be kept in their place they have no business uh you know they have no business uh wanting uh to to, uh, having ambition above their station which (laughs) doesn't doesn't the story of the of the of the 1896 election Kind of sum up the sort of tragedy of the movement, as it were, because it it gets co opted by a by a main party and then it fails because yeah, and that was the end of it. Establishment politics that was, can't that, that killed, That's right. That killed that killed populism. I mean, it's a sad, it's an awful story what happened to them. But after, so they they got on board with William Jennings Bryan, and it was very controversial. The populists were like any left-wing movement had uh, factions and bitterly fought with each other. And one faction was like, no way, don't get on board with Brian. You know, he'll, uh, you know, be, we were, we're more, 
you know, we have more issues than just one. We're not, you know, we're against the gold standard, but we got a lot of other issues too. And uh, the other faction said, this is our chance. You know, this is it. We're going to get on board with this guy and he's going to win. And we're going to be, we're going to get to, you know, have members of the cabinet or something like that. And so they took this risk. It was a gamble. They rolled the dice and he lost the Republicans with the backing that I mentioned, the, I mean, complete unanimous consensus, univocal backing of the American establishment came together and crushed this guy. And the, the, by the way, the stories of the 1896 campaign are legendary. Um, none other than Karl Rove has written a book about it, but he's on the other side, right? He thinks that what they did to populism was, was good. But, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the Republican, his name was William McKinley, uh, he, he didn't do anything. He sat on his front porch in Ohio, but his campaign manager was this tycoon from Cleveland called Mark Hanna. And Hanna was just this genius uh, political operative. And he went, uh, you know, he raised by some standards, the most money that has ever been raised for any presidential campaign, including like, you know, the last one, he raised more by the state, you know, if you, if you inflate it by a certain, you know, by a certain way of measuring. And, uh, and they crushed Brian. Brian had nothing. He had uh, because he was obviously going against the establishment. He had no backers, and uh, he his campaign consisted of he himself riding around the country in what was called a day coach. Uh, you know, he would sleep in the train stations. He had to carry his own stuff. Yes. <laughs> and giving these speeches. Now he had on his side, he was a, he was young, he was energetic, he had uh, this ability, and he was a marvel. People wanted to see him. They were like, Who is this guy? I've heard about him, I want to see him. And so he had that going for him. But yeah, they uh the Republicans just destroyed him in the most, you know, uh, using every sort of weapon of skullduggery of the time, you know. Anyhow. Do you see and you see echoes between the way the, the Democrats stopped Sanders from getting the nomination with the way that well the the, the, the unanimity the, the unanimity is the unanimity is here is again uh, by, and by the way in the unanimity you also see in 1936 where the newspapers of America came together against Roosevelt the economists they would sign these like uh, a document with like 500 economists agree you know <laughs> and all this kind of crap and this is all going on again uh, today I mean the unanimity is uh, is is extraordinary and there's been a lot of commentary about that in the last couple weeks in America, uh, the, the unanimity of the press, but it's also helped by the fact that in America, newspapers are dying. So, you know, what's left of the press, it's not hard to be unanimous when they all come from the same background and they all represent the same interests. Um, I mean, they, they are, they are like, can I take you on a small digression? Of course. So when I was younger, there used to be a regular sort of feature in American newspapers. It was the blue collar columnist, you know, like Mike Royko in Chicago. I used to love this guy, right? And there, there, there were a number of others uh, who who wrote for a kind of labor audience, uh, you know, the common man sort of. And uh, that's completely gone. I mean, the newspapers of America are these bastions of Ivy League, <laughs> you know, yeah. a, a professional class superiority. And they really do believe in hierarchy. And it's a hierarchy in which they are, along with the economists of America and the various other sort of professional elite they are they are either at the top or very close to the top uh and so they they identify with um they identify with people at the top of the uh, of the meritocratic they identify with the elite let me just make it simple and put it that way yes and i mean it, 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 I, you touch on this in the book but the, in britain of course we had we have the labor party we have the labor movement we have the history of labor and 
it's almost as if that with populist that that sort of progression got thwarted a bit in, in yes America. So the, the Populist Party was founded at about the same time as the Labour Party in the UK and the Labour Party in Australia. These were all getting started at about the same time. And the populists often looked to the Labour Party in England as a as an ally. And this was their idea was to start a uh, it was a farmer labor. In America, the farmers were in the 1890s. The farmers were much more radical than the industrial workers. And yeah. um so but they they their idea was to to bring the industrial workers on board and they they got some unions did join up with them there was one called the knights of labor joined up with them the united uh, mine workers joined up with them but by and large it it didn't succeed uh, their other big idea and this is completely forgotten by the uh, people who write about populism today was in the south to reach across the color line and this was uh, ex- extremely controversial but they tried it, and it was the first time since Reconstruction, or, well, I think the first time ever, that they said, if we get black farmers and white farmers to come together, we can beat the ruling class of the South, what were called the Bourbon Democrats. It's extremely ra- racist, the masters of this extremely racist system in the South, who were also the ruling class of the South. And the ruling class of the South said, no, you, you, you know, uh, White. What's more important than your class position is your race position, and if you're white, you have to stick with us, the Bourbon Democrats. Yes. And so and this, the populace, the populace said, "No, our, we actually have more in common with the uh, black farmers than we do with the white aristocrats." And this was, I mean, you can imagine what when they said that, and when they tried that, what the what I mean, how the how the response was. So in in a place like Kansas and nationally, it was like so they wrote mean car they drew mean cartoons about you. No, in the South they shot each other. You know, it was <laughs> you know it was incredible, and uh, it it failed. Uh, eventually, the populist movement broke under under the pressure, and um, I mean, there's a lot of argument about about who's who's responsible for the failure. But yeah, the Bourbon Democrats eventually beat them, and once they did, do you know this story, Freddie? That once they beat the uh, the populists in the South, they disenfranchised black people. And this is where disenfranchisement comes from. So blacks could still vote in a lot of Southern states in the 1890s. And mm. once the, once the populist threat was beaten, the, uh, the in, in what they would call the white supremacy campaign, and they, they use these words, by the way, they're openly, openly racist in a way that is um, shocking. Shocking. To go back to go back and read today. I'm sorry, I can hear an echo of myself coming through your <laughs> computer. <laughs> but um, once they beat the uh, the populace, they disenfranchised black voters and a lot of poor white voters to make sure that that this never happened again. That that there was never another sort of uh, effort to uh, to bring these groups together, and that held until 1964, the Civil Rights Act. Yes. Another interesting element of the 19th century populists was that they were in favor of free trade. They were against the gold standard. They were in favor of free trade. Yeah. Again, and, and no, nobody, I mean, nobody knows that, but farmers in this country are very into free trade. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, again, it's really hard to miss that if you know anything about farmers. And it's like all these academics writing books about populism and they all, every single one of them miss it. And it's yes. like, it's like, have you ever met a farmer? Yes. <laughs> you know, they, they love free trade because they want to sell their stuff overseas. And they also want to, you know, it's that's American, but, like you, Kansas, we produce so much wheat in Kansas. 
I mean, it, yeah. it, it, we can feed the entire country and then some, you know. And, but they and do, I mean, like, they they do want, want tariffs on. They do want tariffs on things coming in, right? No, no, no. They because farmers want to buy that stuff cheaper. They, they, so look, farmers like any other group are very self interested. Uh, yeah. are, are often very self interested, and back then. Farmers were no, they wanted they were low tariff people. Farmers were were they wanted no tariffs. The guy who killed populism, uh, William McKinley, was the sort of the Trump of his day. He was they called it the, the tariff man. They called him the Napoleon of protection. Yeah. And the re- the reason was because he was supposed to be this genius where he would use tariffs to get everything done. He it's like you want this, I'll write a tariff for that. You want that, yeah. I'll write a tariff. It, very similar to Trump, but this is this is not the populist. This is McKinley, the man who killed populism. Yes, He's the tariff, the tariff, the tariff man of his day. But, I mean, the way I read it in the book, it was just it was more simplistic. That the the elites then were in favor of protection, and now the elites in favor of free trade, and so populists. Are- but it's not not really free trade. Yeah, right? you got to remember they want protection for for them. For so, the rich, uh, yeah, far, yeah. yeah. Far, far, wait, I'm I'm serious about this. Big pharma. You know, uh, all of these kind of uh, product things that America produces, these sort, sort of white collar products, you know, uh, you know, the uh, have copyright protection. And they also they, they certainly don't want something that uh, a lot of populists would have supported. Br- let's bring in um, doctors. Let's bring in lawyers. Let's have so many lawyers and doctors in America that medicine becomes cheap or free. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they don't want that. They don't want that. They want protection for themselves. But they want for they want working people to be, you know, look, uh, the, the trade agreements in America were uh, were written deliberately. They weren't just like free trade. If you look at NAFTA, NAFTA is 2000 pages long. The original one that they wrote when uh, you know Reagan and Bush were president, Bush yeah. senior, 2000 pages long. That is not free trade. That is a very complicated, you know, like little things for everybody here to, and, and, you know, and it's not it's not really about free trade. It was about opening the uh, the Mexican economy to American investment to protect American investors if they when they go to Mexico, because Mexico in its populist days, and if you know this, nationalized a lot of American uh, oil wells back yeah. in the 30s. And the, <laughs> the American ruling class has never forgotten that. And they're like, that's never happening again. <laughs> so, that's NAFTA. That's what NAFTA is about. You know, it's not a free trade well, agreement. It's a. I I did. I'm reading the book. It did. I mean, I I know you're, you're very clear in your position on Trump, but I wonder what you think about Trump's changes to NAFTA. Do you think he's just sold the American public a lie, or do you think that actually there are protections for work? There are more protections for workers now in the in the US, UN. I think. I think. Look. I think he did improve it, but I'm not I haven't gone into it. And, uh, you know, I've since moved on. That was the subject in my last book. And I'm sorry to say yeah. I haven't I haven't really studied it. But people that I um, respect and admire say that they were they had a seat at the table and they were able to have a hand in it. Now, look, uh, the first time around, NAFTA was written by lobbyists for these different industries. And, uh, you know, labor was was kept out of it. And this time around, they at least had some voice in it. Now, yeah. that doesn't ex- that doesn't ex- that doesn't mean it's perfect. That doesn't even mean it's good. That means that it, it's probably better. But I'm not I'm not the guy to ask about that. I'm sorry. Well, I, have to weas- about- I have to weasel out on that. Well, no, let's let's talk about the pathologizing, because you get a lot of this with Trump and Trump's fans that you get people saying that they are mentally ill. that Trump himself is mentally ill. Um, and I, uh, I, I kind of. Uh, yeah, well. 
you go along with it a bit. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, there's I, something wrong with him. I, well, I mean, I cl- he's clearly not a normal he'll, person. He'll start, he'll start you know, a conversation and he'll be he'll be talking about something in a normal way and it'll veer off into some weird thing about he himself and like <laughs> how right he is and how smart he is. And it uh, it happens again and again and again. And I don't understand it. It's like, why yeah. can't he just finish a goddamn sentence? You know, say something reasonable. Give people some reassurance, you know, do what a president's yeah. supposed to do. It's it's really strange. It's billionaire syndrome, though. I mean, I think all billionaires. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, it's. But let's, it's talk well. about, so let's talk about the, the, the pathologizing of, of Trump voters and the, the, the sort of insinuation there's something. Yes. Uh, and this t- taps into uh, one of your favorite subjects. I know uh, the paranoid style in American politics, the, the famous Hofstadter essay that is uh, used a lot by lazy journalists like me. Uh, <laughs> by, uh, Look, I, I like paranoia at the heart of America. <laughs> so Richard Hofstadter, I told you uh, earlier that I studied American history and I, I was I was a big admirer of Richard Hofstadter when I was younger because he is such a beautiful writer and this elegant, not only this elegant literary style, but this very elegant way of thinking. Uh, you know, he could connect ideas that you would never think of. I mean, he, I, I really admired him. And uh, this is when I was younger and was studying history. And uh if there is any one person who is responsible for flipping the script on populism, it's, it's, it's Hofstadter. And it's not really the, his essay, The Paranoid Style, which you just referred to. It's a book that he wrote earlier than that. It came out in 1955. Um, it was called The Age of Reform. And the idea was that what we call the age of reform here in America from the 1890s up to Roosevelt, that, uh, that uh, – Populism is the big villain in this book. This is a reform movement that really wasn't. It was. It was. Uh, uh, it was. It mentally sick. It represented people who were downwardly mobile and therefore had a lot of funny ideas. Who were paranoid. Uh, who were uh, 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 basically anarchic. Uh, come on, let's. It's, it's the entire stereotype. I'm, I'm. I'm forgetting some bits and pieces of it here. It'll all come back in a second. Uh, but it, this is where uh, he's the first one to do this. So up until the 50s, populism had been admired by American historians. They thought this was a great movement. This was the founding of the American liberalism, such as it is. And Hofstadter says, no, populism is a terrible mistake. Uh, all mass working class movements are, uh, you know, are um, uh, have these uh, pathologies. And they're, uh, you know, that are uh, psychological in nature. And they, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, like I said, they're paranoid, they're anti-Semitic, they're uh, racist, they're um, uh, anti-foreigner, they're xenophobic, uh, you know, all of this stuff. And he, and he, and he applies all this to populism. And the book is a huge bestseller. It gets the Pulitzer Prize. It's massively influential. And, um, it became well. So I go back and read it now, and the way I understand it now, it's it's not just a book about history. It's a manifesto for a generation, uh, for for Hofstadter's generation. So this is the 1950s. There's a new elite coming up. Uh, this is the time when the sort of professional class is taking over a lot of big institutions. Highly educated people are running corporations. So instead of being a corporation being run by somebody who's inherited it, this is the whole Galbraith thing, you know, the new industrial state, uh, the man mm. in the gray flannel suit. You know what I'm talking about? The organization man. All of a sudden, the corporations are being run by people with MBAs rather than people who inherited them. All of a sudden, government departments are being run by people with PhDs uh, rather than somebody, you know, 
a politician. All of a sudden, the Pentagon is being run by uh, guys from Harvard, you know, political scientists. Uh, yeah. And so and so Hofstadter looks at this and says, this is liberalism. This is what we need is we need a uh, sort of professional elite running things. That's how you get reform. That's so it's an enlightened managerial class. Bingo. And yeah. so the idea is when you do these, they called this the uh, consensus school, the consensus intellectuals. And it wasn't just Hofstadter. Hofstadter was was one of them. But Daniel Bell was saying the exact same thing. Uh, There's a sociologist called Edward Schills was saying this. There's a sociologist called um, Martin Lipset was saying this. There's a whole generation of these intellectuals who were saying these things. The, the, the way you get reform is you have a bunch of highly educated people sitting around a mahogany table in Washington and figuring everything out among themselves. You do not want a mass movement of working class people. That's you cannot have that. That is automatically a recipe for xenophobia, anti-Semitism, uh, and all of these mental pathologies. Okay, so that they are Hofstadter argues this. It's a massive success. Uh, Daniel Bell says the same thing. Schill says the same thing. Lipset says they all use the word populist as shorthand to mean the pathologies of mass movements. This is why you can't have mass movements. They say. All right. Mm. Uh, fast forward about five years and Hofstadter's book is the American history profession destroys his book. It is just, it is uh, uh, just taken apart piece by piece by American historians who've actually studied populism. Hofstadter did very little archival research. None. He got books out of the library and read them and made, drew his conclusions. So historians who'd actually done the primary research on populism just, uh, crushed you know they were like no your interpretation of populism is completely wrong it was not anti-semitic it was not xenophobic it was you know go down the list all it was didn't have these pathologies in fact your whole understanding of mass movements in this psychological take is is logically wrong and and Hofstadter's book lay in ruins within five years yeah massively disproven but here's the interesting thing his usage of the word populist as a shorthand for everything that is pathological with mass movements and with working class people that continued and that continues yeah. to this day. And that's what you see it all. Remember when we started to talk all of these books, this whole pedagogy now of anti-populism, this whole anti-populist pedagogy traces back to Hofstadter. Okay. That's where their usage of the word comes from, whether they acknowledge it or not. That's, that's his, historically where it comes from. Here's the thing that I want you to take away from this, Freddie. This is I'm an entire, <laughs> you ready? You ready? <laughs> this is an entire pedagogy that is based on a mistake. You've got these professors at Harvard. You've got these think tanks. You've got, you know, this international lecture circuit. you got, fucking guys at Davos talking about this. It's all based on a very famous mistake. Yeah. A book by Richard Hofstadter that was massively and overwhelmingly refuted. Their entire pedagogy is based on this. But I, I just like, if for, for someone like me, well, fuck it. But no, no, I mean, I see what you're saying, but, but what it, what it boils down to is, is it's always, it's a, it's a snobbery and it's a hatred of, Oh. Exactly. So that that that's what keeps it going. So I'm sorry I didn't finish the story. I, I get I get so caught up in my own personal. <laughs> was good. It's, your populist rage is coming out. <laughs> yeah, the PhD populist. You know, right? But uh, so 
Hofstadter and his friends, the, the consensus intellectuals, like I say, they're writing these manifestos for their generation. Probably the most famous one is Daniel Bell, The End of Ideology. Ideology is over. We don't need ideology anymore. We need um, technocrats. We need people with, with advanced degrees from Harvard. They, they run everything. It's going to be cool. They needed a, a word, a single word for the, for, for the people who were not them, for the, for the, the group that they were displacing for the model of reform that they were overthrowing. And the, the word they settled on was populism. Yeah. And that's, that's how it, and they all used it that way. Um, uh, you know, totally, uh, uh, what, what's, what's, what's the word, uh, promiscuously. They, they just, yeah. all, just threw it around without, and by the end of the 50s, people were using the word populist without any reference to the populist. They didn't even know what it was, right? They were just like, populists are these people who are, you know, uh, labor saw- movements and... Working I saw class one, one word that popped up was, was I think it was around this time, maybe been early. It was popocracy. The, no, that's like, that's from the 1890s. That's when the that's in the 1890s. Yeah, yeah. When the when the populists came together with the Democrats, they called that the, yes. the popocracy, the popocrats. But the a word that they used in the 50s that became a very big was working class authoritarianism. And so yes. the idea became that that all working class movements are 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 essentially authoritarian in their nature, and um, this is this is a hilarious argument. And it, it by the way, it's still running, still going, still going strong. But uh, even though working class movements like say you know the AFL CIO says they're not authoritarian, and even <laughs> though they actually do not act in an authoritarian way, and even though they are in fact the victims of authoritarianism, right? Like, like, you know, uh, uh, Hitler, right. Or fascism, who loved nothing more than to kill unionists. Right. Yeah. Even though all those things are true, they're still authoritarian and we can prove it by giving working class people psychological tests. Well, do you- <laughs> don't you love that? Isn't that a yeah. great way to do history, Freddie? It's like, it's like, no, we don't have to actually prove that your movement has done these things or said these things or believes these things. And you might even be the victims of these things, but in fact, you're the perpetrators. And that, yes. it, that is still going strong to, to this day, the idea of working class authoritarianism. And you know what their answer to working class authoritarianism is? Uh, no. The authority of the professional class. They need a dose yeah. of... <laughs> The, <laughs> the authority of us, our authority, our authority has to crush their authoritarianism. <laughs> it's, 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 think, it's, it's beautiful, but that's American intellectual life. But do you think it's sustained by, uh, I mean, people say liberal guilt too much, but it's sustained by a kind of liberal guilt, isn't it? Because ultimately, it, you know, there is injustice. There are poor people. There are different ways of fixing it. Uh, but the, the, the professional, the expert class, uh, they need to come up with a way of, of sort of resisting the democratic currents that might make them less comfortable. Yes. And you see that a, a lot in the sort of uh, the, the debates about which direction the Democratic Party is going to go uh, it, it, since which, by the way, de- debates that I followed very closely and in fact had something of a hand in, you know, with my last book, Listen Liberal. And mm. there is so much bad faith uh, in these arguments, you know, uh, and well, one of them is the, the historical argument about whether uh, the Democrats abandoned organized labor or whether uh, white working class people just turned bad uh, yeah. you know, at some point, you know, and, and overwhelmingly Democrats must believe the latter. Uh, yeah. Because they they can't admit they uh, they can't admit that this whole turn that they've been on since the uh, early 1970s has actually been in bad faith and it's and it, they have turned their backs on you know the uh, organizations of the working class in this country and that 
and it's you know it's not a big shocker that the Democratic presidents we've had since then, Bill Clinton and Barack, well, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, have all of them betrayed uh, uh, you know the working class in these spectacular ways, uh, and but they can't see it that way. It's it's extremely painful for them to see it that way. And so then instead they have to fall back on this, this notion that, you know, that, that working white, especially white working class people are, you know, in the grip of these pathologies, et cetera. Yeah. We, I think that, I mean, that's, we're going to do about five more minutes. And then we're going to take- By the way, that's also, that's also the whole, that's also the whole Trump problem in a nutshell is uh, I wrote an article uh, for the guardian back when Trump was, was running saying, you know, you know, I got news for you, liberals. There's a reason this guy is 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 catching fire, and it's not merely because he's a racist, although that was part of it. I mean, the dog whistle stuff, right? He was right out. He was open about like all of these sort of monstrous sentiments, but he was also doing these other things. You know, talking about the trade agreements, talking about deindustrialization. You know, which is a it still blows my mind that a Republican campaigned on that. I mean, Republicans are the ones who deindustrialized this country. And here's, you know, Reagan, right? And here's yeah. this guy, here's this, uh, this guy using Reagan's slogans to campaign. Anyhow, but I, I so I pointed this out. And uh, rather than acknowledge that and do something about it, we all, well, we all know the story, you know, the Clinton campaign very famously blew those people off. Uh, and, and, uh, and the, the rest is a disaster. Now to, to their credit, the Democrats now know or, or seem to know what a mistake that was. I mean, this is one of the things about Biden. Biden is not going to be easy to beat in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio uh, and Wisconsin. You know, the the, the Rust Belt states, the mm. so-called Rust Belt states. Uh, it's you know, he he at least is culturally on a um, on the same level, uh, you know, uh, more amenable to those people. He's never going to call those people deplorables. Never, never in a million years. The. Um, no. But the the uh, the bad faith of the Democratic Party back in those days was was extraordinary, was overwhelming. And you see you saw it in the way they um, uh, argued against and ultimately uh, beat back the challenge from from Bernie Sanders, uh, which Bernie, in my mind, really does represent the sort of populist tradition. And 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 also he knows it. He, He understands this history. Uh, more well, than, I, I think I disagree slightly on Biden. I think Biden has said sort of strangely uh, snobbish or, or, or kind of off things uh, about the com- but but working men like him. They just they have an affinity with him, and he just he gets and, away. Yes, and he was he was endorsed very early on by. Um, and I, I wrote an article about this for the Guardian because I was mystified by it. Uh, my you know, you look at Bernie Sanders. He has a one hundred percent lifetime rating. From the AFL CIO, right? This guy's like yeah. the A plus student. And Biden's yeah. is about Biden's rating is about 80. And yeah. uh these all these unions endorsed, you know, chose the B minus student over the A plus student. He's like, why? Why'd you do that? Well, and so yeah, I mean it's, it, a, it's well, an that, interesting that's the question. With unions in, in my uh offensively right wing point of view, is you it, it <laughs> relationships and they will I mean, Biden has has personal relationships with all the unions, and that's why that he got them on board. Yeah, that's that's yeah. certainly part of it. Is a lot of these guys know Biden and they really like him, uh, yeah. and and he's and he's he's culturally he's he's sort of from the same kind of background as a lot of these people, and that's that's good, right? That's 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 to his credit, and I think it's uh, and everybody's pointing this out now. He's he's not hated in the way that Hillary Clinton was. Uh, and that's going to remember Hillary was Trump was more hated. Of course, Trump was the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time, but Hillary was the second most. 
And that's yeah. not the, that's not the case with Biden. <laughs> so yeah. he had I think he has a very good shot. I, I, I really don't want to talk about um, the upcoming election, but I'll just make it real short. I don't see how a man uh, wins after bungling the pandemic the way Trump has. And I don't see how he wins with, with 15 percent unemployment. That's just no way. Yes. But it, it, I mean, yeah. things might change between now and November. But well, let's not talk about the election, but let's talk about what happens to populism now. Lastly, um, I mean, Sanders has effectively been defeated. Uh, again, you might see uh, the Democratic Party sort of co-opting the movement and then ignoring it. That seems to be the most obvious thing that would happen now. Yes. So two, there's two ways it can go. One is if Biden does what he's done forever, which is he's a centrist Democrat and the uh, sort of the left populist wing of the party will get no hearing from him at all. Uh, and that's what I expect to happen, even though Bernie Sanders says um, – he has great hopes for Joe Biden and thinks Biden will be very progressive. I, I strongly doubt it. I think the same thing will happen as what happened under Obama and what happened under Bill Clinton and what happened yeah. under Jimmy, what happened under Jimmy Carter. And I think that you will see uh, the, uh, the right moving to, I mean, there's a lot of people on the right who are actually better politicians than Trump. I mean, my, you know, obviously much better politicians than Trump. And you, I think you will see them moving to take advantage of this in the way that Trump did. Uh, and yeah. I think that's I think that's the future. Now, the the opposite could happen. And so what you have to remember about populism, when when people like me use the word, we're we're talking about mass movements of working class people. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not just politicians. It can't just be a leader. The leader has to have a movement behind him. So Roosevelt had the labor movement in the 30s. The labor movement was growing explosively and winning strikes, et cetera. And in the 1890s, of course, it was the farmer movement. And um Today, the, the, the movement that if there's any movement that looks good to me today, it's Black Lives Matter, which has a very populist. I think about that that phrase, Black Lives Matter. That is as, as populist as you get, uh, mm. you know, and uh, the thing is that they haven't the definition of populism is a movement, you know, a, a mass movement of working people that's focused on economic democracy. And when they make that leap, when they start talking about the sort of, you know, criticizing the capitalist system then you will yeah. have popu- then you will have a populist movement on your hands and that's well, what you lose it hey, because hey, they start, hey, they start talking about destroying i i hope that they happens. start talking about destroying the western family and and you know and uh, and transgenderism instead but yeah. uh, well there's no the war the war right now uh, on on the the sort of uh, left in america is uh, the the corporate types are trying to um, grab that they want to like they, yes. they're forever trying to swipe the righteousness of the yes. you know historic left, and they're doing it in real time now. They're trying to swipe the righteousness of this movement as, yes. in real time, and they so the the whole war is going to be is going to be is this is is this movement going to what the hell are you doing? I'm trying to get the questions up. <laughs> oh, okay, is this <laughs> movement going to be is it is it going well, to be is it going to be woke capital or is it going to be a genuine movement of of the people? And we're going to yes. find out. We're going to find out. Uh, it's looking like woke capital to me at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> well, if, if that ha- if that happens, then you know, basically, people like me have no have no future. You know, it's going to be it's going to be all um, of these uh, these anti populists and. Well, I, I think you must have a future. Wave the book around while I while I get this question up. Yeah, here uh, it is, folks. Everybody should buy uh, this book. It's utterly yeah. brilliant. Uh, <laughs> but let's take the most popular question here, which was uh, popular, <laughs> which was appropriate. Uh, populism was destroyed in the 1890s. Do you think the same fate 
awaits the populist surge in the US and elsewhere this time, or is it unstoppable? That's sort of what we were just talking about, but perhaps if you just answer that. But it's, 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 no, it's, uh, it's not that it's going to be, uh, the thing is that it's, Trump's mass movement isn't a real mass movement. They can't make Trump do anything. Uh, Trump is his, Trump does what he wants to do and they have to put up or shut up. There is no, I mean, there's a, there, there are people trying to start mass movements like the populist movement in the 1890s, but we haven't seen that yet. In populism, the movement comes first and the politician comes second. What we see in America are politicians sort of leading these um, anti-elitist uh, revolts. I'll give you the, and then you also see all these fake movements. Now I'm going to say something that's really going to piss off your readers. The Tea Party movement. This is yeah. a, a classic fake uh, or upside down social movement that a lot of good people signed up for. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. So the populist movement in the 1890s, a movement of farmers, remember, they're one of their big enemies. The big villains in the populist populist pantheon were commodity traders who were you know, <laughs> literally ruining farmers, you know, uh, bankrupting farmers. And uh, where is the Tea Party movement founded? It's on the floor of the Chicago, uh, you know, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the commodities exchange in America. That's who starts <laughs> the movement. And what's their great text? It's Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, which is about a strike, right? A great populist theme, a book about a strike, a strike of the billionaires. The billionaires <laughs> bring the bring the common man to his knees by going on strike. It's everything is turned upside down, you know, but they were the only ones out there at the time uh, really protesting the bank bailouts. And that was um, that caught on, you know, that was that seemed if you didn't look beneath the surface, that seemed real. And, you know, a guy like Glenn Beck, if you didn't dig, it seemed real. Well, yes. because I mean, they objected to socialism for the rich, right? That was the... Uh, yeah. By the way, that's a, uh, one of the more interesting guys who talks about populism nowadays is Bannon, Steve Bannon. And I, I don't agree with him politically, but Bannon uses all of these left-wing phrases because, you know, this is what the, the right has been doing for, for years in America. They can see that the left has fallen apart. That the old sort of uh, ec- you know populist left that that I like to think I'm part of has no power, has no spokesman. You know the Bernie movement is a recent thing, but for for many years there was nothing, and so they 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 swipe the slogans, and they swipe yeah. the uh, uh, the ideas. And Steve Bannon is one of the sort of preeminent swipers of this. And there's this I watched when I was writing the book. So Bannon is one of the characters in the book. I was watching a debate that he had with David Frum. In uh, somewhere in Canada, really, really interesting. In the course of the debate, Bannon uses this left-wing phrase, "socialism for the rich." We have in America says we have socialism for the rich, and it's like that's yeah. like Noam Chomsky says that, you know, <laughs> and it's Steve Bannon saying that, you know, it's yes. amazing. But they do this; and they do, do this all the time. You, you, you're quite way, cynical about that. You always say, you know, he swipes the phrase. Do you think he might actually mean it? He might he, remember uh, Bannon is an interesting guy, but but if you, as with all of these guys, uh, once you start digging into the details, it all goes wrong very quickly. The same with Glenn Beck, the same with the Tea Party movement. But so Bannon made this uh, documentary about uh, the financial crisis of 2008, which is a subject, believe me, I know something about. Okay, and uh, I went back and watched this documentary, and he it starts out. Very straightforward. It looks like one. It looks like there were a bunch of documentaries about it that were, uh, you know, very journalistic and 
uh, really on target. And his starts out, it looks exactly like one of those. A lot of the same people, a lot of the same talking heads. And then all of a sudden it swerves and he tries to blame the financial crisis of 2008 on the hippies in the 60s. <laughs> it's like, what? What? And by the way, that's not. It was you, definitely their fault. You could do that. There's a way you could do that. You could do, you could trace, you know, bank deregulation to Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton was part of that. But he doesn't do that. He just is like, hippies were bad. They believed bad things. And now here we are. Bad things are happening. But it's cultural <laughs> it's, it's just complete yeah. bullshit. But so he says these things that are on the surface sound pretty good. And then, but then you, you dig, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And the same with yeah. Trump, even when, even when Trump was running in 16 and he would denounce the trade agreements. And I'm like, well, I thought the trade agreements were bad. Uh, you know, I, AFL-CIO has been arguing that for decades. And then Trump says, if only, you know, the, what would make the trade agreements good is if we let the CEOs of America negotiate them. And it's like, <laughs> that's what happened. That's why they're so bad, you know? <laughs> It's just uh, it's all, it always goes wrong. These arguments they start they sound good and they always go wrong. Let's let's take another question. This is from Matt Stoller, and it is. Oh, I know, uh, hey, I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I've even got his book. His book is like is in this house somewhere. Well, um, you'll like this question. He says you, you said this will be your last political book. What will you write about next? And what up on Frank clones should we start following to get our political analysis? Oh man. So I, I don't really want to talk about what I, what I write about next, but so I've, I've dreamed for years of getting out of, of politics because it's become so unpleasant and um, well, there's a lot of reasons. It's also not, not uh, challenging to me anymore. You know, it, it was when I started out, but it's not, it just seems, uh, you know, like being against Trump, come on. That's not not, Washington Post has five op-eds every day attacking Donald Trump every day for the last four (laughs) years. It's like, you know, what what's the challenge? So, you know, years ago before I wrote about politics, Freddie, I was uh, I I, I wrote about cultural history. That was always my thing. Literary, literary and cultural history. I wrote about the advertising industry in the 1960s. That was my dissertation. And, uh, you know, it was a book and it was a good book. Um, You can go back and anyhow, it doesn't really matter anymore. But. There are all these different directions I could have taken from that, that I had ideas that I had at the time. And uh, politics is the one that I wound up going down for you know complicated reasons. Uh, that's the route that I took. But uh, I really want to go back and explore some of those other things that I didn't do I, because, uh, you know, there's more to life than just uh, than just politics. You know, there are other yeah. things. But listen, I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Everything I write has a political sort of side to it or a ramification. Yeah. So, and what so, about so, any so up- stay tuned, folks. Don't give up on me, okay? What about the up-and-coming Tom Frank clothes? Who, there, is there anyone you've been reading who's oh, coming? Well, uh, geez, well, Stoller himself, he and I see eye-to-eye on, on many, many, many things. Yeah. Uh, well, Barry Lynn has a book coming out that's uh, that's probably uh, Barry Lynn is an anti-monopoly guy in D.C. Anti-monopoly is one of the classic populist uh, issues uh, in this country. There's there are several other people who I really admire, historians uh, and 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 journalists who I think are really good. And you'll see me write about them in the future. So great. Well, we hope in the spectator one day if we can if, if you can bear to write. <laughs> wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> but it's also it's also it's also not that far fetched, Freddie, because 
one of the things that I've succeeded in doing in the last couple of years is making myself so unpalatable to American journalism. You know, I don't know how I, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I did it. But there's basically only like one or two publications in this country that you I should feel very vindicated for. by. It. You should feel totally <laughs> so no, so as I write right, these days, I write for well Harper's, of course, but I write for the Guardian and for yeah. uh, Le Mans Diplomatique in Paris, and that's it. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, let's see. There's what, another question here um, from Sandra C. Do you see Trump's populist appeal fading with all the current developments, pandemic, economic fallout, social unrest, media polarization, expanding of cancel culture? Uh, yes, I I do see Trump's uh, allure fading. However, I was you know when I started first taking note of what what is uh, called cancel culture, I don't think that's uh, I have a lot of problems with that phrase, but we'll talk about that uh, later. Uh, I I I knew immediately that this was going to be his campaign issue for 2020. This is back before when the economy was still booming. Now, had the pandemic not happened. Um, Trump would be hitting the culture wars with with everything he had, and and he would be in a really good position. Uh, yeah. But the pandemic, uh, I don't see how you bungle a pandemic like this and come out of it, you know, and, and win re-election. It's this is a this is a catastrophe, and um, and that then plus the you know extreme unemployment. I mean, the meanwhile, you know, people who own stocks are doing fine. Uh, big, the biggest of corporations are doing great. Look at Amazon. You know, they're rolling well, everything up these days. Well, let's 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 talk a little bit about cancel culture. It's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, I know, but I mean, uh, it's also it's also the the criticism of it is is right. A lot of so one of the things I learned very early on, Freddie, as a journalist, and you learned too, is you got to have a thick skin because you're going to get a lot of shit in this business and you're going to write something and people are going to dislike it and they're going to come at you. And that, that has been happening to me since I did started the baffler magazine. You know, I was like, yeah. you, you have to be able to absorb that. You have to be able to take the criticism. And these days that criticism is on Twitter and, and, and it's on you know Facebook and you have to be able to, you have to live with it. Um, on did the you... other hand, on the other hand, there is this uh, very unhealthy, tendency towards denunciation uh, and uh, a kind of a sort of uh, uh, a cousin of blacklisting, let's say, on the left that disturbs me, not because these things are I mean, these things are disturbing generally, but they're especially disturbing that they're on the left. The left should have nothing to do with that. I mean, study yeah. your history, folks. When once they start, once you start blacklisting people, it's going to be you. If you're if you're on the left. You know, it's going to be you, you know, look at your history. This is what happened to the, you know, this is the 1950s. This is the 1890s. They are, if you try to form a union, you know, the, you got blacklisted. That is well, not did, something to encourage. You do not want to add fuel to that fire. And well, did, you, uh, I, did, you, did you follow this story of the Harper's letter last week? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I thought to. I've been, I, I, I've, it was, well, in my opinion, it was a very uh, kind of wet uh, letter, you know, sort of saying yeah, that we nothing, nothing we remarkable Trump. about it. Yep. We yep. promise you we hate Trump, but please, we want free speech. And, yep. and it did still trigger this strange. Well, that's because the signers were such a weird lot, you know, and there were all of yeah. these people that have these that have these grievances that are, you know, they, they never got the thick skin. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But <laughs> they never learned to take it, to roll with it. But yeah. here's the thing. This is this is the important point of it for me. And that is uh, that. On the left, we have look the the whole, and this is the last chapter of the people 
No. I go back to a populist historian called Larry Goodwin, who I, I was very influential to me when I was a young man. He wrote a, a famous, famous, famous history of populism, meaning the 1890s movement. His book came out of the 1970s. He thought populism was the high point of American democracy and that we've been downhill ever since. He loved the populist movement. And he was also, and he wrote about other things too. He wrote about organized labor. He himself came out of the civil rights movement, you know, as a lot of these sort of latter-day populists did, came out of the civil rights movement, and wrote and then became a theorist of populism. How do you get another movement like that going? How do you get a movement like the civil rights movement going? And he wrote about this a lot. And one of the phrases that he came up with, with which I thought was absolutely beautiful, was that, you know, we on the left have to pray. If, if you want a mass movement of ordinary people, you have to realize those people aren't perfect. And you have to show what is called ideological patience. This is his term. You have to show ideological patience when you're working with these people. And what mm. we have today on the left is the exact opposite of that. It's not about building a movement. It is about purging. And it's about, no. it's about kicking people out of the movement. And that's like, that I can see why, right? That's, that's, you, you want to be on top. You, you want to claim it all for yourself. I get that. And that's, yes. that's basically the logic of the Democratic Party, you know, is like so then you're not a, you're you're 20 different party, people fighting and one of them gets it and then they and one of them gets to the top and then they want everybody to get in line behind them. Right. But yeah. that is not how you build a mass movement of working class people. It's how you build a couple people uh, or a, or a something. Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. But it's it's but I, the way you, the, we're doing the exact opposite of what Larry Goodwin said we should do. And that so, really, really bothers me. Tom, we're going over time, but there By are. Way, Larry, Larry Goodwin is completely forgotten. You go back and look at these the, the anti-populists <laughs> of today; they never mention the guy. You know, yes. they never talk about him at all. And he was a serious theorist of populism. Anyhow, sorry, go well, ahead. There's two very good questions have come in, so I'd like to answer them. Even though I'm sorry, we're, we're going over time. Um, where does Eugene? This is from Aaron Bowater. Uh, hello, Aaron. Uh, where does Eugene Debs fit into the story of populism, the left, and the Democratic Party? Oh, there's my dad. Hey, dad. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Eugene Debs was uh, was a populist at one point. So yeah. he led the famous uh, the Pullman strike in Chicago in 1894. It was a gigantic nationwide railroad strike and um, gets thrown into prison, comes out of prison. And he's and he's a, a he's a populist and he starts appearing at populist rallies and had they not uh, endorsed Brian in 1896, they probably would have run him for president. He's just a charismatic uh, public figure. People who knew him loved him. Uh, they thought he was a kind of saint, a kind of um, Christ-like figure. Uh, and, uh, mm. and then, of course, populism fell apart. And um, he went on to become a, a socialist and yeah. uh, was the socialist candidate for president many times. Very admirable man. Uh, and that's that's sort of where he fits in all this. Um, by the way, the, one of the parts of the book that I want we didn't talk about. I'm sorry, I'm getting off. Well, we, we should we should wrap this up. It's in the very last chapter, the part about what's called the Little Blue Books, which is another Kansas claim to fame. Kansas has very few things to be proud of, you know, the Wizard of Oz. But one of them is uh, is 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 inventing the word populism, and another one is the Little Blue Books. This is the man who basically invented paperback publishing out of a small yeah. town here in Kansas. And he, he, there was a socialist newspaper called the appeal to reason. 
It started out as a populist newspaper, then when populism died, became socialist, and then socialism died, and the guy who was the editor of it at the time said, well, what can I do? I got this huge printing press, you know, what can I do? And he started putting out, um, you know, classics of world literature in these tiny little uh, pocket-sized forms and selling them for five cents. They yes. put up, they had vending machines and stuff. You could buy, you know, Goethe from a vending machine. And... Um, it was a monster success. It was a huge hit. And he, he developed this idea that, uh, and this is, this, is what's, this is also really fascinating and totally forgotten. Expertise should be available to everyone. Expertise should be available to the lowliest American. So what, the reason we have experts in high, and learning and all this stuff is not so that we can have a professional class. Look at me sweating. It's not so we can have a professional class, you know, a meritocratic class that rules over us. It's so that we can all participate in learning and science and, um, you know, expertise. And this was a revolutionary idea and yeah. came from Kansas. It's great. And it, well, I mean, we, we haven't touched on a few things in your book, which is why I would encourage everyone to read it, because it is uh, a very rich uh, book, and it's beautifully written, as all the things you write are. Uh, Thank which, you, sir. One more question. We've got one more. There's a question oh, here. Oh, hell yes. Hell yes. Okay, let's do it, and then we'll, we'll wrap they it up. I want to know what, what's, what's the – well, nothing. Go ahead. Uh, what is his opinion, his you being you, what is your opinion uh, towards today's right-wing populism in general? There's been a few questions. I'll just sort of try and summarize them, which is that you sort of seem hostile towards the idea of right-wing populism. Uh, well, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a whole book about it, uh, What's the yeah. Matter with Kansas, yeah. where I, I, I interviewed a lot of these people. So, I, you know, you saw this stuff, uh, sort of the, the, what's become Trumpism. Uh, here in Kansas, you know, years ago, um, they, they had this war over the theory of evolution. Now, I should say minus the, the bigotry. That's one thing I did not come across very comp, very frequently when I was writing What's the Matter with yeah. Kansas. There was not a lot of that. But the um, war over the sort of triumph of this professional class, you saw that all over the place. So Kansas was this hotbed of the culture wars. And I saw that as a kind of populism uh, turned upside down. And my attitude towards it was, well, this is this is a it's both a fake and a fraud because you know the, the these people get in in power and no they don't they don't give a damn about your war on the theory of evolution or your you know your your fight against uh, abortion or whatever abortion was the big issue here in Kansas that turned the state to the right by the way but the yes. the, the people who who you have then put into office they don't care about that they just want to cut taxes you know, yes. Look at Sam Brownback. Look at I mean, look at all the people that Kansas has sent to Congress. That's all they do. They make you know, they make their their rich friends even richer. And um, this is it's this sort of colossal bait and switch. Yeah. And uh, th but the the language that the right wing uh, populists used in Kansas that I wrote about was very class conscious. It was, uh, you know, lots of stuff about working people and ordinary people being sneered at and discriminated against and treated badly that yes that's you, you know this has been coming for a long time and my argument then is the same argument i make today this is going to continue until such a time as you get a real populist movement that steers those people back in the right direction or you get a democratic you know the sort of the more likely thing that you get a democratic candidate who is able to speak to these people and to you know to actually talk about class-based Issues. These people felt the class snobbery of the sort of ruling elite in Kansas. They felt it uh, uh, very. Um, uh, what's the word? Not not 
uh, poignant when when a when a disease is really come on it, it painful it was it was yeah, sorry I, I, every now and then i lose my word acutely that's the yes. word i wanted they wanted it was a, a, they felt it very they they had this very acute sense acutely, of class, yeah. acute acute sense of class consciousness but minus the economics of it yes. and that was that was really weird but that's uh so that's my take on on the sort of right wing variant and uh it's not hopeful and it's not positive but at the same time i liked a lot of these people i thought they were good people they you know and i if i still lived here they'd be my you know i'd be friends with them and stuff like that well it's interesting you mentioned the the, the pro life and abortion thing because a lot of it is is on the right is about religion and about the way uh, the elite talk to to the to yeah that. and they have all these sort of persecution fantasies you know yeah. christians christians are persecuted here in america you know and yeah. I, I i understand where that comes from of course you know that's a central image of 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 the religion right the persecution yeah. of of the holy figure you know and uh, i i to- i totally get that uh but it's also factually you know wrong <laughs> it's just yeah. not happening they're quite lucky by persecuted people's standards i suppose <laughs> yeah. yeah you go to your mega church you watch it on tv all the time you know yeah well, Tom, I think we're going to wrap it up there, but thank you so much. Uh, wave, hey, wave. Freddie, great conversation. I've got a, a paper copy here in the UK. I know, you printed it out, right? Yeah, yeah. no, here but, it is. Uh, the, people, uh, the, the title, by the way, is a reference to an American poet. The people, yes. Knowing. Yeah, Carl Sandburg, yeah. who's sort of one of the heroes of the book, a really, really wonderful guy. Yeah. The poet of the people, they called him. <laughs> we will send an email um, with a link to, where, to uh, where you can buy the book. And also a link to Tom's website where you can look. You can look at the illustrations, yeah, without the illustration, even buying the book. Yeah, uh, which, are, which are well worth it. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure and a privilege. Uh, please uh, come on again at some stage. Hey, you got it, Freddie, anytime. Freddie.